Heavenly Father, it's with prayerful hearts and grateful hearts, joyful song that we consider the theme of this song that we have just been singing together that Jesus Christ and His work on Calvary has signed, sealed, delivered atonement for our sins and the complete, the complete new birth, the resurrection of our dead souls to newness of life. We are reborn in Christ. The old has gone, the new has come, Lord. Eternal life has dawned on us upon our salvation with glorious revelation of the risen and the reigning Christ. And we worship you, Jesus, this morning because it is your completed work on Calvary that binds us together in fellowship today, that seals the hope for our eternal salvation, that gives us, Lord, a heart to turn from sin and turn to you in praise, repentance, and worship. We thank you for these moments that you have given us together, Lord, to join in song and in our hearts, Lord, quieted before the authority of your word, to hear and to surrender to that truth that you have proclaimed and that which you have worked in your in your work on Calvary. We thank you, Lord, for these moments. We pray that they would be fruitful, Lord, in our life to bind us together and to bind us to you with cords that can't be broken. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. Turn with me, if you would, in your scriptures to Psalm chapter 48. Psalm chapter 48, in a moment, if you're able, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Just want to note this morning that this psalm also indicates that we have been in the psalms, one a month for 48 months. That signals four years of God's faithfulness to us in allowing us to consider His psalms, one a month for that long and By His grace, may we continue, and Lord willing, at this rate, in about eight and a half years or so, we'll have covered the entire book. And what a worthy journey that truly is. Not only the book of Psalms, but anywhere we set our mind upon in Scripture. And so, I just wanted to honor and glorify the Lord and recognize that He has given us the opportunity 48 times to consider these glorious songs in Scripture. So let's consider one together this morning. Stand with me with your Bible open, if you would, to Psalm chapter 48. Let's read these verses together. There's 14 verses here that comprise this song under the title, A Song, a Psalm of the Sons of Korah. In verse 1 we read, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Selah. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness, Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk around Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. This is the infallible Word of God. You may be seated. This morning as we consider the richness 
perhaps just scratching the surface of the depths that could be plumbed of the glories of God revealed in these 14 verses, I'd like to give you a title to kind of summarize the conclusions that I've come to upon meditating on this psalm this week, and that title is Scriptural Social Studies. Scriptural Social Studies. I don't know if you took a course in social studies like I did in grade school and on into high school growing up, but that's a category of study now that's typical in educational curriculum since the 1920s, in American culture anyway. Social studies have been a formal category or branch of education that has concerned itself with the relationships and the function of society. Relationships and function of society. And so this branch of education, social studies, incorporates or subsumes other academic disciplines, other fields of study, and they include history, government, economics, civics, sociology, geography, and anthropology. History, government, economics, civics, sociology, geography, and anthropology. Anthropology, the study of man. Geography, the study of physical boundaries as they relate to nation, states, and peoples. Sociology, the study of the interconnectedness of certain peoples and their relationships one with another. Civics, the idea of our affairs conducted in the civil sphere, that which is represented by governments, economies, and so on. Economics, exchange of money and trades and services. Government, the order and authority. History, of course, the record of a people. All of these things are subsumed under that broader category that we sometimes call social studies. Well, it strikes me this morning, while we won't touch on every one of those specifically, Psalm 48 certainly does. Psalm 48 talks about the history of God's people, the history of God's providence. Psalm 48 has implicit and and explicit terms of government that are declared, the order in society and the power and the authority that God has specifically even over kings and nations. Economics is mentioned, civics is mentioned, sociology can be inferred, geography is clearly mentioned, and anthropology, the the nature of man, is also apparent in this text. All that proves to us this morning that our modern ideas of what to study and how to order our thoughts related to themes like government or social uh, interaction of peoples is nothing new. Psalm 48 proves to us from the genius of Scripture that it is nothing in an innovative, that is, social studies that modern man might claim, but the Bible offers us an introductory course in true social studies from the bird's eye view of God's self-exalting providence, if you will. The Bible gives us a unique perspective to understand ourselves and to understand relationships. And Psalm 48 is a helpful installment in giving us that bird's eye view or that biblical perspective on how to understand the interconnectedness of us as people and especially us as people to the Lord. And here in Psalm 48 we have both poetically and symbolically set forth worshipful and teaching values of the copy and the shadow of what the Old Covenant represents. In Hebrews 8.5, it talks about the Old Covenant, the way that things were ordered, particularly in the sacrificial system and in the society, the social structure of Israel, the nation-state. It speaks of those things as a copy and a shadow. They were symbols and types. They spoke to us of more powerful realities that are fulfilled in Christ. And these pictures in the Old Testament, by way of both social order and history, are extremely helpful because they shed light on the fulfillment of Christ. Thus, Psalm 48 is a celebration of the architect and the architecture of covenant history. Psalm 48 uses many metaphors, but one metaphor we could uh, kind of employ in understanding what is given here is that all of history is like an edifice, like a structure, like a building or a city, like a work of great architecture. And all of history has a designer and an architect, and it is the Lord of glory. Thus, the architect and architecture of covenant history are seen in the pictures and metaphors of Psalm 48. And these include the city-state of ancient Israel, temple worship, ethnic distinctives of ancient Israel, and all of these serve as effective and indeed vibrant, beautiful metaphors 
of their fulfillment, which would come in the Messiah, their counterpart, which would be revealed in Jesus Christ. This Jesus Christ we now know from the pages of John's Gospel, who was and is and was the Word in flesh, who came, and in the Greek it's literally rendered, tabernacled among us. That is what the tabernacle represented in temple worship of old. Christ is substantially for us. We remember in John chapter 4, the woman at the well has a question a little bit before the time. She doesn't recognize that Christ is the walking temple and reality. That answers her question. Her question is this, where should we worship? Should it be on this mountain or that mountain? We'll learn there's two mountains in, considered in Psalm 48, and uh, they're different than the ones that she mentioned. However, one is the same. Do we worship in Jerusalem or do we worship here in Samaria? And Christ said the time is coming, and that time was represented uh, at, at that very time in His work in Calvary that would ensue in just days and just weeks when those who worship worship neither here nor there geographically, but in spirit and in truth in Christ. So Psalm 48 flashes forward in the imagination and in the poetry to a time when the glorious tabernacling of Jesus Christ would arrive on the scene of history and everyone who are in Him, you and I included if you're in Christ today, could count ourselves as living stones. The household of God, according to 1 Peter 2 verses 4 through 10 that Matt opened our worship service with this morning. Let's consider four divisions to help us to organize thoughts along these lines in Psalm 48. Four divisions uh, identified by four key words. First of all, declaration. There's a typological or symbolic geography and poetry represented in Psalm 48. And it declares the sovereignty of God and we'll see that in verses 1 through 3. Secondly, there's a subordination. There's a declaration of authority that places... In an altercation of war, like circumstances, all other authorities under the feet of Almighty God. And in here we have a philosophy of history in verses 4 through 8. Thirdly, there's meditation. There's covenant realities that our attention is drawn to in verses 9 through 11. And finally, there's a charge given. There's a commandment given implicit in the text for us, which is education. We have a calling given the glories of Psalm 48 and the rest of Scripture of generational continuity, legacy, and succession to take these things seriously, to become an expert of what they are, and then to transfer and to teach them to the next generation. Declaration, subordination, meditation, and education. Let's read again in Psalm 48, verses 1 through 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king, within her citadels, God has made Himself known as a fortress. Citadel is a synonym for, can be a synonym for fortress. It's a fortified position, a redoubt, a castle, an area that is fortified and strengthened for protection against the enemy. It's a place of assurance and security. Not just the security, though, is evidently glorious in this picture of Zion, but there's an elevated position and situation. All of us are familiar in natural photography where people take pictures of what they consider to be majestic examples of God's, if they're believers, God's handiwork in nature. And invariably in a book of pictures of nature, you'll have a photograph of mountains. There is something about the majesty of high places, even naturally occurring of mountains, that has captivated the imagination of man universally. Uh, from From when time began to the present, man has been drawn to the elevated positions which show a certain reach into the heavens, as it were, and represent a higher plateau. And for some, that's best appreciated in an adventurous attempt to summit, to climb to the peak of a mountain like Mount Everest or something like that. For others, it's just that picture that they look upon and consider the glories of this. Well, there's a mountain pictured here, but it has on its top a habitation, a fortress, a city. If you add to that mountain picture now a castle, 
jutting up into the sky. And here we have more occasion for the imagination to run wild as we consider that picture of a faraway place that's unassailable by its enemies, that has a commanding view of the entire horizon, 360 degrees, and that has a place of security and a place of majesty. This is the picture here declared in the first three verses of Psalm 48. Not only that, but this picture of elevation and superior positioning and glory in its poetic description is emphasized by a certain poetic structure. We've commented before that the chief literary device of Hebrew poetry is parallelism. In poetry that we're familiar with in our language, usually it rhymes and has a certain meter. Hebrew poetry can have meter, I'm told, but its chief distinctive feature is that it has parallelism or repetition of ideas in slightly different ways. And in this poem here in Psalm 48, in the first three verses, there is an intricate twist on this repetition of ideas, and it's represented in this literary term called a chiasm. A chiasm is a symmetry of parallels. And if we assign a letter value to each idea, I'll walk through this. We've done this before when we've come across them in the text of Scripture, but I'll walk through this with you again, and hopefully you can see uh, some of the beauty here, even as it's structured as a poem and as a literary device. So in verse 1, we have this phrase to introduce the text. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And if we sign that idea with the letter A, and then move to the next phrase. In the city of our God. There we have B. The third idea. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. That would be C. And then we have The fourth idea, D, is the joy of all the earth. And that's central to the chiasm there. And then we have a parallel idea again. Mount Zion in the far north. Well, that would be C again. And then the city of the great king. And then we identify that thought as a parallel with the city of our God. That would be a repetition of B. And then we have, finally, A. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress, corresponding with, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. So if you can picture this in your mind, you have idea A, idea B, idea C, and then the crowning idea D. And then in descending order, idea C, idea B, idea A. It's just cool as can be. It's a symmetry in the shape of a mountain, if you will. If you line up the corresponding ideas, it's beautifully projecting a picture, even in the shape of the way the author lays out these ideas of a place of elevation. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And corresponding with with their citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. And then in the city of our God, and in the city of the great king, and then his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, corresponding with Mount Zion in the far north, and finally the capstone, the joy of all the earth. So the author is telling us in this unique form that the hope of all humanity, and therefore as especially as believers, and specifically as believers, the apex of our affections, the center of our lives, everything that should resound with us as joyful, glorious, hopeful, in the language of Hebrews, restful, the utmost of salvation, destiny, future, purpose, glory, salvation. Everything that ought to be represented in our minds by that category of joy is built upon the work of God in history. The fact that our God is great and greatly to be praised. That He has established our habitation and dwelling with Him. That in the picture of this citadel and castle with bulwarks and towers, it is a picture of security and a place where we receive the provision and the protection of the Lord. It is a city where others join us in relationship and joyful fellowship and interchange. And in this city we exchange, among other things, the worship of the Lord our God with our fellow believers. And we exchange a dwelling upon His glories and and a stewardship of that which He has 
materially and spiritually provided us in His grace. And this is truly a place of elevation above the mundane and the valley and the darkness and the shadow of light. It is an elevated place where a palace would be built, where a throne would be established, a place of privilege, a place of importance, primacy, destiny, and influence. And this is truly for the believer the joy, the joy of all who are in Him. And it is the testimony of all of history. History is the servant of God to elevate Him upon His throne. All of the nations, even those that are wicked and deceitful, will one day serve to elevate Christ our Lord by serving as His footstool as He defeats them and proves Himself powerful and glorious upon their demise. And in this picture, in the declaration, both symbolically and poetically, of the geographical location of Zion in the city of God, we have for ourselves here in this psalm glorious thoughts to meditate on about the declaration of God's sovereignty and majesty over all history, over all the earth. And this poetry and metaphor provides a striking example of these glories as we behold them. Secondly, under declaration, the symbolic and geographical language of the poetry here, there's what I call a concept um, as a tale of two mountains. There's a concept here, I've done some extra study, and I'll have posted, Lord willing, on the uh, uh, website this week under excerpts, some, a little essay that I've written and combined with some other resources to give you a little bit more of the historical background, because it really is rich and helpful for understanding what is difficult to translate from the Hebrew in this passage. I'll give you a few explanatory sentences briefly, though, just to clue you in. When the Bible says, when the Word records in verse 2 the following, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king, at first it could strike us as curious and, uh, language and mysterious indeed. Why? Well, partly because Mount Zion, or the place where Jerusalem, or the center of worship was among the Hebrews at this time, was certainly not in the north. It was the southern kingdom of Judah. And that which was to the north was the, you know, most of the nation. So the situation of physical or geographical Mount Zion was not to the north. Well, it turns out that in the Hebrew there's an idea here that's being communicated that could perhaps better be translated beyond the north or surpassing the north or ruling over the north. Mount Zion beyond the Hebrew word is Zaphon, Z-A-P-H-O-N, or Mount Zion surpassing or superior to another place in the north, the city of the great king. And what this psalm actually has in view is a tale of two mountains. We find in pagan antiquities that the Hebrews were not the only one that ascribed metaphorical significance to geographical high places. The pagans did the same thing. And in the north, or to the north of Israel, was a mountainous location that was thought to enthrone Baal, the pagan deities. And in fact, in Sumerian-influenced cultures, which was one of the oldest cultures that we know of there in the Mesopotamian region, this idea of an assembly of pagan deities on a high place, in particular on this Mount Zaphon on the border of Palestine and Syria near modern Turkey, was a recurring aspect of pagan temple worship and pagan idolatry and uh, even philosophy. And an aspect of this Sumerian-influenced idea remained culturally prevalent in that region all the way through to the Greeks and the Romans. You may be more familiar with the gods, the kind of demigods, half-man and half-deity, weird amalgamations, creatures that the Greeks and Romans worshipped. You may think of Roman culture and maybe have some familiarity to it, like Mount Olympus and so on. Well, there was legends and tales of an assembly, a rendezvous point of pagan power on these mountains. Well, what the psalmist means to convey, therefore, in Psalm 48, verse 2, is that there is a holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, that commands the attention and is authoritative over all of the earth 
But it is not Mount Olympus. It is not Mount Zaphon. It is not the lair of Baal. It is not where Zeus resides. No pagan deity, no non-god lays claim to any authority. In fact, it is that which surpasses and rules over and is superior over the north. It is Mount Zion. Mount Zion beyond any other claim to rule and authority, any other claim to deity and to power, Mount Zion rules and reigns supreme. There God is pleased to dwell. There God is pleased to execute His dictates and His holy word. And when that word and that righteousness, which includes a proclamation of salvation and judgment, is delivered, it is a heralding summons that calls everyone everywhere, no matter who, what nation state they swear their allegiance, no matter what deceptive, uh, uh, religious deception that they are under, what pagan deity they swear their fealty to, no matter who they are, that heralding voice of righteousness goes out to all and says, repent and believe in the one true God. Beside me there is no other. I alone am God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. Baal is nothing. Astroth is dust. All of these pagan deities are foolish implements of man. They cut down a tree. They burn half of it to heat their house. They carve the rest into a fake representation of something they place their hope in. What foolishness, what idolatry. Turn to the one true God who has made a covenant with His people. He is pleased to dwell with us. And the terms of that relationship are represented by God visiting earth and His people at Mount Zion. And on that elevation, on that place of security and hope and salvation, everyone must bow or be crushed to powder. This is the tale of two mountains. It is not that there is any other serious contender to authority. It is not that we will ever discover another aberrant philosophy to explain the meaning of history. It is not that we will ever, through uh, the advancement of man's ability and sciences, ever find a pagan hope aside from God Almighty for salvation and hope for the future. It is that there is, the truth is that there is only one place of hope and assurance. And it is represented in Psalm 48 by Mount Zion. And it is fulfilled in our tabernacling Jesus Christ, who in His incarnation came and dwelt among us, And in so doing, becoming man, he succumbed himself to temptation and was without sin. And thus in his humanity and divinity, with no mixture, yet no subtraction of either, he was the perfect, sufficient sacrifice for our sin. And the sacrificial system pointed to him. And Mount Zion pointed to Mount Calvary. And in Christ and at that cross is the only rendezvous location where man can be reconciled with the divine. And there is only one way, one truth, and one life. And there is only one authority who rules and reigns over all. Finally, under declaration, as we consider this beautiful picture, turn briefly with me to Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis 11, we have a negative picture of a city-state, an erection of a society and a tower and an edifice and a building on an elevated place. All of this and its geographical and its social significance represented something to the people who built it, but it was idolatrous and it was anathema to the Lord. And we learn as much in Genesis 11, it says in verse 4, Then they said, these are the people now not obedient to the Lord, But coming up with their own ideas, they said in verse 4, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole, over the face of the whole earth. Verse 5, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. 
and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. I submit to you that what is pictured in Genesis 11 is a perverse attempt to unify the fortunes of men into an assurance and a future and a hope of salvation. And that perverse attempt is tried over and over again, generation upon generation. We'll place our faith in anything and everything of man's design and architecture, seeing man as the measure of all things and the architect, and yet every one is eventually, in God's due providence, torn down and dispersed. Yet there is this sense in Genesis 11 that if man could be unified in one accord at a central place, and if it could be on the right terms, it would represent a sort of high watermark, a sort of unity that would be extremely powerful. And what Genesis 11 portrays in the negative, Psalm 48 portrays in the positive. Imagine a people whose God is the Lord, who all speak one language, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What will that people serving Him be unable to accomplish? Nothing so long as it is in God's will and decree for them. The church of Jesus Christ, though the enemies abound and have always outnumbered her, has lasted to this day. And she is strong and firm and assured and secure. And the church of Jesus Christ will endure until he returns for his bride at the fullness of perfectly ordained time. And God has commissioned his church to go forth and to shine for him, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there has in every age since the dawning of the message through the apostolic record on the first few that were visited by the Holy Spirit, there has in every age been preserved a remnant to do exactly that. And that unified purpose has been effective for thousands of years and will prove more effective still on into the future as every one of Christ's enemies are systematically subdued under the feet of the aggressive forward-marching, militant church of Jesus Christ. And in this way, we see in Psalm 48 a picture of the unity and the purpose and the strength of our numbers. We see juxtaposed to Babel, that is, a new organizing principle. In Jesus Christ, represented in the old by Mount Zion and the sacrificial system, but for us, fulfilled in His work on Calvary, we have marching orders, we have a king, We have a new uh, allegiance, a new national identity, if you will, that fuels us and encourages us and gives us morale and unity and effectiveness in the kingdom of our God. Secondly, this morning under divisions in Psalm 48, having considered declaration, let's consider subordination. Verses 4 through 8 read, For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic, they took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. And here in this section, there is an altercation in view. War is declared, and victory is also um, evident and obvious to those who are fighting on behalf of Mount Zion. Those who bear the standard of the victor of Mount Zion and who have uh, represented behind them the favor of the Lord and swear their allegiance to the King of Kings and make their residence in His citadel, they are the ones who are unassailable, who cannot be destroyed or utterly forsaken. At the, very end of this, uh, at, the, of, at the very end of this song, it says, He will guide us forever. But literally in the Hebrew, that word or that term is more accurately translated, He will guide us even to death. That might be surprising at first glance, but the... Uh, The key to understanding there is that not even death itself is an enemy that can defeat his people. Death has been destroyed. 
The Word of God also tells us that this last enemy has been defeated. So all the way through death, God's people and our King are unassailed. And even though the forces of the wicked one assemble themselves together to stand against us, they are utterly routed in due course and in due time. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 14. Briefly, I want to give you a cross-reference. Recalling to your attention that Mount Zaphron, uh, where the pagan deities assemble, or Zaphon, where the pagan deities assemble, it's easier to understand what is pictured here. But additional light is shed on this when we read another uh, cross-reference in Isaiah 14. Here it's speaking of Israel's rem- uh, Israel is in the uh, strong position, ironically so, and actually taunting Babylon. And this is language of victorious, dominion-taking war. And we see in verse 13, You said in your heart, speaking to Babylon, as represented there, a, a pagan country who placed their allegiance in pagan deities, Baal and others, who would uh, be well represented by Mount Zephon, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. Notice that phrase, the far reaches of the north and mount of assembly. It's this pagan picture of authority. Verse 14 continues though, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Notice verse 15, what becomes of those who established themselves there. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms? Who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities? Who did not let the prisoners go home? And you see the incredulity now with the perspective of history unfolding. Those who look like the most formidable war machine. uh, collectively intimidating in the terrorism of Assyria, or standing against and even coming as God's tool to to take captive the people of God as Babylon, there will come a day in the course of history where when they are so utterly routed and defeated and cast down from their foolish, idolatrous high place that the world will marvel and say, as they send a postcard from a decaying ziggurat in the Middle East, You mean there was a world power that once stood here? This is nothing but sand and decaying mud bricks. This is nothing but the clay remnants of prior generations' folly. Here, and you can visit those places all over the world, can you not? You can go and see the Colosseum, where our brothers and sisters in Christ were slaughtered before gladiators and wild beasts. And what is it today? Oh, it's just a curiosity that you put on your bucket list to visit and send a postcard to brag to your neighbors and friends that you got to see when you visited Rome or you're at this or that place in Europe or Italy. These, this is what becomes of those high places that were once so intimidating, that thought they ruled with an iron fist, that declared they had autonomous rule over the kingdoms of God and certainly not one nomadic tribe that uh, has an inferior war machine and, you know, uh, came in their best expression of culture in the Bronze Age and were inferior in so many ways, could stand against mighty Assyria, mighty Babylon, the Chaldees, those represented by Mount Safan with the idols of Baal and Ashtoreth. Well, in the end, God is pleased to use the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And that tiny and significant nation of Israel was the thorn in the side that eventually gave an infection to those surrounding nations and they died. Yet what Israel represented continued and was fulfilled in the church and continues to this day. And she is enthroned as it were on Mount Zion with her Lord Jesus Christ ruling and reigning with Him, watching as the years of history unfold the rise and fall of empires and nations and authority structures decay and collide and collapse with the, when they meet the Almighty God. For behold, the kings assemble, they came on together. But as soon as they saw it, what did they see? They saw the glory of the Lord pictured on the citadels, 
for a moment it was opened up to them in this picture here, the armies assembled in heaven. And just like those that came against Israel, when they heard the chariots, the angelic hosts in the heavens, we see even here in verse 8, the Lord of hosts, that language there, that name for God. When they have a single glimpse into the heavenly realm, they know that they are destroyed and doomed. And they scatter a thousand ways. And when this happens, at God's point in choosing, one puts 10,000 to flight. and They cannot stand against the Lord. In fact, as soon as they see it, they are astounded and they are in a panic and they take flight, according to verse 5. Trembling takes hold of them there, and they are in anguish as of a woman in labor. It goes on to say in verse 7, By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. First of all, under this subordination, which could be said to be a philosophy of history, given the antithesis, the seed of the serpent, warring with the seed of the woman, if you will. There is, by God's decree, a tension there, where Satan has given a limited jurisdiction and role and a certain realm, but it is not a dualism. He does not have the power of God, but instead is like a pawn on the chessboard of God's glorious history and will prove to be the, uh, the absolute fool and the absolute, uh, the absolute enemy of Christ utterly destroyed at the end of history when he is bound and no longer able in any way to deceive the nations. Yet in this time where there is warfare back and forth, We've mentioned that there's powers that rise and fall. But there's also a hope and pride that men place in economics and the exchange of material resources and just their relative prosperity. Is it not when men are well-fed and healthy that they feel most secure and can thumb their nose at God and are obstinate in their rebellion? Yes, it's always the case that cultures, when they are fat and happy and well-fed and fully clothed and pockets full of money are least likely to humble themselves before the Lord. But notice what happens in verse 7. It says, By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. The ships of Tarshish is another metaphor representing the interchange and mercantile and resources. The port of Tarshish was the furthest western seaport where ships would come and go and they would supply nations and international trade would take place with the things that they needed by way of gold, silver, and precious metals, mediums of exchange, as well as raw materials that they're essential uh, for the construction of their cities and so on, like timber and, and, uh, and even clothing and uh, textiles and things of that nature. But these ships are so vulnerable. They're just little sea-going vessels made of toothpicks on a sea of tumultuous chaos, if the Lord, which is a brush of His hand, so chooses to bring an east wind. It says in verse 7, By the east wind you scattered the ships of Tarshish. I just imagine a little whisk like this, and the winds of the sea blow in a mighty hurricane. And for days and days ships are lost at sea, and they're reduced to the timber that they were uh, at the beginning. And they wash up on the shores of various islands and coastlands, and their contents are nowhere to be found. And this is the picture of God's authority and power even over the interchange and economics of this world. Translate this into our modern society for a moment. Do you remember the flood uh, recently that came uh, over the levees of Wall Street, even in New York City? There's probably no other city in the whole world that represents what Tarshish represented than New York City itself, where the stock exchange is and Money and fortunes are traded and lost and gained there daily, hourly, even by the moment. Yet there was a moment in recent years where a flood came in. And all of a sudden you saw for a brief moment the power of God even vested in the elements of nature. And all it would take is one well-directed hurricane by our sovereign God. And in His providence, all of Wall Street would be disabled. No more trade could continue. And all that accrued power and wealth and that reason that a, pin, a pitiful pagan man had to thumb his nose at the Almighty would be washed out to sea in just moments. This is the picture of the subordination of our God. And finally, there is a declaration of the supremacy of the city of the Lord of hosts. Its population endures. In verse 8 it says, And we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, 
which God will establish forever. Turn with me to Hebrews eleven eight through 10. We see the fulfillment of this kind of Old Testament language. The fulfillment as to today as it was re- re- prerequisite in Abraham's day requires the eyes of faith to see, but that does not mean it's any less real than the cities we see with our physical eyes. In fact, not only is it every bit as real, but it is superior and more powerful, this assurance that we have represented in the city of God. Hebrews 11, verse 8 through 10, we read of our forefather Abraham. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was not knowing, and he was not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. This is the city I submit to you of Psalm 48. The city of the Lord of hosts. The city of our God which God will establish forever. As we recall Abraham's story, he left a city, a well-established center of economics, enterprise, and uh, international import and influence. That city was called Ur. And ironically... Foolishly, from the eyes of man, he went to another city that he would never see in his lifetime, but he did so based on the promise of a God who works in bigger ways, in a bigger picture than just the tangible little window of our own life. And this Abraham was content to be secure in God's promises, even while he lived in a temporary structure for the rest of his life. He camped in tents and became a nomad for the glory of God. But where does Abraham dwell now? It was just a few short years that he dwelled in that provisional, uh, temporary abode. But that, like Paul said, is like our body, just fading. And it's temporal. But it gives way to the secure and the eternal. And Abraham now resides in glory, in heaven. And he is there waiting with the other witnesses that Hebrews 11 goes on to document to encourage us to walk by faith. Never mind the pagan deities. Never mind those who assemble to come against God's word. Never mind those who have declared themselves authoritative over the gospel, over Christ, over God's will and His word for all of life and for all nations. His declaration of authority, His rule, His law, His reign. Never mind them. We serve the Lord of hosts. And we have a city not made with hands, but it is imperishable in glory. And we will join our father Abraham if we are in Christ, eternally residing at that place of high majestic elevation that surpasses and rules over any other city, even the ones in the north where the pagans have set up their idols. It is the city of the great king. It's fortified by citadels, ramparts, and fortress that cannot be torn down. It is Mount Zion, and let us this morning, let our hearts be fueled with the joy that that expectation ought to give to our souls as we plod along in the war of this life. Thirdly, this morning, in Psalm 48, verses 9 through 11, we're reminded to meditate, meditation, on covenant realities. Notice the tender language in contrast to the warring ideas we have just read. Now the psalmist touches upon the personal heartstrings, our relationship with the Lord. He reaches deep into the soul and he says the, as he says the following, We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. 
As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. The psalmist would challenge us by this psalm, which is a great means. We could memorize, we could sing, we could study, we could think over and over about the truths here. We're often guilty in our day and age of meditating more on what are the dangers that surround us and the evil that seems to be encroaching and beating down the door of the church just like Lot's neighbors did at Sodom and Gomorrah. Many times our meditations are more saturated with fear, concern, anxiety, and uncertainty than they are the covenant realities of our relationship with Christ. Psalm 48 was written for a people in distress like this, written for a people that are in exile now, but have their citizenship shortly, fully manifest in glory. And we are among those people in spirit, and we share in that experience. And so let us set our mind upon, first of all, the relationship that we have with the Lord through His steadfast, covenant-keeping love. And again, in the Hebrew, here is that word, that repeated word in the Psalms that rings with the glorious clarity of relational connection in God's covenant with us, where a sacrifice and shed blood has atoned for our sin and secured our association, our fellowship, our friendship with Him. We have thought on your steadfast, your hased love, O God, in verse 9. It is a continual meditation of the psalmist as they write, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Kingdoms rise and fall. Trials come and go. Difficulties and adversities, pestilence, famine, and sword, they wax and wane. Yet the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His hased care and concern and covenant binding love is a mercy that is new for us every morning. And so we should meditate and think upon the steadfast love, O Lord, in the midst where of the temple and the gathered assembly of His people and the regular collection of the redeemed and blood-bought as we are this morning. Let us do this. Let us set our minds and attention on the love of Christ. It is a more powerful force, a more secure bond, a more enduring reality than any adversity that we have in this short life could ever represent. So think about the relationship we have with the Lord. Secondly, consider His glory, His renown. It says, as your name, O Lord, O God, in verse 10, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Satisfy yourself with meditations on the name of the Lord. That is, His attributes, His worth, His works, His glory represented in what He has done both for you and for all the faithful through history that is evident, documented, recorded infallibly in His holy word. Set your attention on the glory of God and His Christ and that praise that has touched the far reaches and coastlands, nooks and crannies and corners of this globe with the gospel that is transforming hearts in the most unlikely dark corners of the pagan environments where the gospel has gone sometimes through the sacrifice of a single missionary or a page of the Holy Scriptures. And in this way, the echoes of God's glory through His written Word, even as creation testifies, reaches across this globe as the waters cover the sea. Thirdly, in our meditations, the psalmist would have us consider the Lord's righteousness. Again, verse 10b, Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let us content ourselves in the beautiful law of God, His precepts, and this, His decretive will, His omnipotent power, where the people of God universally are bound in unity because we all love the Word of God. And we set our course and moral compass against its dictates. And here is a good place for us to set our mind in the throes of the battle. The right hand of the Lord, that which He has decreed and willed on purpose, is filled with righteousness. And it declares the terms of God's holy requirements, and then informs us what is infused and imputed to us in the righteousness of Christ upon our salvation. And then sets forth for us 
a goal and a program for our own sanctification as we seek to grow in our understanding and worship of the Lord, confess and repent of old ways of thinking, and embrace the reality of life in Christ. And finally, under meditation, consider and meditate on His reckoning, His judgments. Generations indeed thrive on this truth. Verse 11, let Mount Zion be glad, let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. And we think of our God who holds this world in the palm of His hands and is sovereign over the balances of history and sets us free to worship. Our daughters, as it were, which represent the most vulnerable contingency of our people, they rejoice freely and they are set free to dance and to sing without a care in the world, as it were, on account of the reality of God's judgments. We are free from fear and we can rejoice as those who are redeemed in newness of life without the sword of the enemy just hanging over our heads, daunting, deafening, and representing chains and bondage when we consider the judgments of our God. Every wrong will be righted either in this life or the next. And this sets even the most vulnerable among us who fellowship represented by the daughters of Zion free to rejoice and to indulge in the glories of God and to worship Him with hearts aflame with gladness. And finally this morning, having considered some of the weight and density of this psalm, we are entrusted with a call to steward it well. The Lord does not give us all this worth and wealth of revelation and truth to hide it under a bushel, as it were, or to bury that talent in the ground. But instead, we are called to, in verses 12 through 14, to educate others. But first, we must be educated ourselves. Consider these words again. Walk around Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. There is a calling for the reader to comprehend this psalm. Some of what I've delivered to you may sound that it's a little theologically uh, specific or technical. It may have sounded in its history, uh, in the background that I tried to offer, a little dense and academic. It may have sounded a little bit uh, complex. What would you... Well, this psalm in the end actually affirms all of those things. In order to understand and appreciate what Zion represents, it takes a concern and a care and a love and a desire and attention and a mind and an eye and a diligent survey of its surroundings. I I hate to tell you this, but in spite of all the abilities of any preacher, including myself, to try to simplify, to apply, and to convey the Word of God to you, there is simply no easy way to grasp the fullness of the Word of God by some handy-dandy illustration or some quick little formula. There is instead a call for all of us to educate ourselves and become experts in what Zion represents. This is indicated by the repetition and call to consider well and carefully the truths of the gospel as it were in five ways. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels. In other words, become a theologian, become schooled and educated and try the best you can to be an expert at the truths and the glories of God. Walk about, go around, take careful consideration, make lists, write things down, compare, read other literature that would help you understand, perhaps commentaries from reputable sources. But of course, and always primarily the Word of God in context Find out what is a a good, sound hermeneutic. Learn the specifics of systematic theology. Let them guide your understanding so that you can consider well, go through, walk about, go around, and number the glories and the beauties of the Word of God. This is not, in this fellowship here, merely my call, brothers and sisters, 
But this is a charge to all. Why? So that every father and mother in this room and every future father and mother and every spiritual father and mother may tell the next generation that this is God and to tell them not with, this is the way I feel, this is my experience, this is what I like, this is what I've been told, this is what I would like to see or to entertain, this is what's popular today. No, but to tell them what Zion is actually like because they have studied her themselves. They've done the work and the homework and the scrutiny and the diligent effort to walk around, to walk about, to number, to consider, to go through her towers, her ramparts, her citadels, and the particular aspects of glorious redemption in all the facets that Scripture affords. So after we have comprehended these things or set ourselves at least upon the value of their comprehension, we are then to communicate them to others. There is a mandate for Christian education that is reiterated in Psalm 48. The goal of biblical understanding is to tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. A poetic reiteration of Deuteronomy 6, which commanded national Israel to teach their children every waking moment the precepts of God's holy law. Reiterated again in Deuteronomy chapter 11, and here with even shades of meaning that tell the, that communicate to the people that this is God's provision to communicate the revelation to the next generation. This again is apparent in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, where Paul tells the early church that the fathers there have a responsibility to raise their children up in the discipline, the nurture, the admonition of the Lord. There is a call to comprehend and a call to communicate. And finally, there is a promise that when we do so, that the work of Christ, the glories of God, and the testimony to the same will continue. There is an eternal trajectory of the church. There is a reality of Psalm 48 that will never die, but will continue to exalt and glorify the Lord from generation to generation until Jesus Christ returns for His fully then or his bride then fully gathered in. Again, the last two verses of Psalm 48, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. In closing this morning, this type and shadow that we see in Psalm 48 and in the Old Covenant when it's paired with the form and substance in the New Covenant, we have, as it were, even more of Zion to look at as New Covenant believers. There are more citadels, that is to say, borrowing the poetic metaphors. There are more ramparts. There are more towers. There are more fortified positions. There are more aspects of the architecture of covenant history for us to appreciate, to love, to learn, and then communicate to others in the new covenant. In closing this morning, Hebrews 9. Again, there's a lot of parallel, I'm sure you've already sensed, between the book of Hebrews and Psalm 48. And here is one of those parallels that just strikes a note of Christ-fulfilling clarity that I want to leave you with this morning. Hebrews 9, 23 through 28. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Eagerly awaiting for the fullness of Zion. Let us close in prayer. O oh, Heavenly Father, 
May, be, may we be counted among those who eagerly wait, who eagerly study, and eagerly share the glories of the gospel, the record of your revelation and truth. I pray that you would use this message to commit to our attention, memory, and meditation more citadels, more ramparts, more streets, more elevation, more of the situation of the truth of your holy word, your precepts, your promises, your providence, your working intrinsically, Lord, and intricately through all of history to show forth your glories, Lord, and to proclaim your great name. Help us, Lord, to take seriously this call. And Lord, for those who may not be accounted among the population of Zion this morning because they have stood on the hill of paganism to judge the word of God, I pray that they would repent of their bale of self, of their asterisk of their own thinking and autonomy, and they would bow their knee before the cross of Jesus Christ, and they would begin now with eyes open then to see, to behold, to record and to proclaim, Lord, echoing Scripture, the glories of our God and our great salvation. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.